Okay, so tonight's reading is from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. It'll also be in the, the screen above me here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, Uni Church. It is wonderful to be back uh, with you as we open up uh, this most important chapter uh, of the Bible. You might not have realized it whenever, um, whenever Keith read that for us. But what we have just had read to us is widely considered to be the most important paragraph ever, ever written. If you went across the road to Queens and uh, went to the philosophy uh, or the history department and you asked them, what's the most important book uh, that's ever been written? There's a good chance they would say the Bible for how it has shaped the world we live in. If you then went to the theology department or the biblical studies department, not that Queen's has a theology or biblical studies department anymore, but if you went to that department and said, what's the most important book in the Bible? They'd probably say Romans. If you then went and found an expert in Romans and said to them, what's the most important bit of Romans? They would almost certainly say Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Uh, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said that these words are the chief point and the very central place of the letter and of the whole Bible. These are important words. Why are they so important? They're important for many reasons, but one reason is that because in these six, seven verses, we find the answer to two of the most important questions we will ever ask. How can I be sure that I am saved? How can I know for sure that God is good? If you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you will probably have asked these questions before. Maybe you ask these questions after you commit that sin again. Am I really saved? 
can God actually have forgiven me? Maybe you ask that question after committing that sin that you never thought you would commit. Am I really a Christian? Can God actually forgive me? If you are a Christian, what I hope you'll see is that in this passage, in the passage this evening, lies, this passage lies at the very heart of what we call Christian assurance. How you can know for sure where you stand before God. Of course, I know that not everyone in this room is a Christian. If you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're with us. But if you're not a Christian and you've, you've heard the gospel before, you've heard that Jesus' death on the cross pays for your sins, that if you trust in him, you will be rescued from God's judgment, you've probably asked some version of these two questions. How can the death of one man pay for my sin? How can that rescue me? And if it does rescue me, how is that fair? How is that just? That's what our passage this evening is all about. How we can know for sure that we are saved. How we can know for sure that God is good. If you wanted to have two words uh, that begin with the same letter, you could talk about certainty and the character of God, although certainty and character, same letter, but they sound different, so that's not that helpful. How can we know for sure that we're saved? How can we know for sure that God is good? Let's pray as we look at these words together. Heavenly Father, as we study this most important chapter of your word, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us everything we need to understand what it says and to live our lives by it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last four weeks, we've been working our way through Romans chapter 1 all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And if we're being really honest, if I'm being honest, it's been pretty hard work, hasn't it? It's been pretty uncomfortable because week after week, we've been reading Paul's warning that judgment is coming. And we don't really like, I certainly don't like, talking about judgment. God's judgment, according to Romans 1 to 3, is coming for all people. Whether you're a non-religious person, whether you're a religious person, whether you're a good person, whether you're a bad person, God's judgment is coming. God's wrath, his anger at sin is coming. Do you remember back to Romans chapter 1, Paul said that humanity's sin, that their idolatry, their sexual sin, their envy, their murder, their deceit, their malice, all of these things that we look at and think they deserve God's judgment, they are in themselves evidence of God's judgment. As God hands humanity over to their base desires, I think C.S. Lewis summarized it as saying, God saying to humanity, your will be done. That is evidence of God's judgment beginning. But God's judgment, according to Romans, wasn't simply coming on the people who religious people like me might think deserve God's judgment. God's judgment wasn't simply coming on the bad people. God's judgment was coming on the good people too the good living person, because they too, even though publicly they might 
that decry those sins. They might say, oh, those are awful things. Privately, they're just as guilty. They're just better at hiding it. God's judgment is coming for the obviously godless. God's judgment is coming for the, the good living, the subtle hypocrite. And God's judgment is coming even for religious people. In this instance, the Jews. Because not only do the Jews and Romans commit the same things that they condemn, even though they should know better because they have God's Word, they have the Old Testament, they presume that their privileged position as God's chosen people will save them from God's judgment. They had the law. The Old Testament was written to them and for them. God couldn't be angry at them. They were God's chosen people. But the overwhelming message for the past three, four weeks has been really clear, hasn't it? God's judgment is coming for the whole world. Here's what chapter uh, 3, verse 19 says just before our passage. Let's turn this on. That'll help. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight because of the law. In other words, If you think that your attempts to keep God's law will save you, you're wrong. You will still be judged. The good things that you do, the good things that I do, will not save you. They will not save me. The things you do will never make you right with God. Let me be really, really clear here. Your conservative values will not make you right before God. Your pursuit of social justice will not make you right before God. Your pro-life rally will not make you right before God. Your fair trade coffee beans will not make you right before God. Your sexual purity will not make you right before God. And your carbon neutral clothing or your electric car will not make you right before God. Have I offended everyone? Is anyone not yet offended? Good. Because this is offensive. God is on the offense against us. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. It's bleak. But listen to verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you feel the relief of those words? But now? 
How can you know for sure that you are saved? Not by your good works. The good things you do will never make you righteous. If you're saved, you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus alone. Now, faith is a little bit of a tricky word. It's a tricky word because it's sort of been redefined. It's been redefined. It's been misused for the last sort of 2,000 years or so. Here's a couple of good examples of it. Here's what Sam Harris says, my favorite internet atheist. Sam Harris is no friend of Christianity. He says that faith is the license religious people give one another to keep believing when reasons fail. Faith is a license we give each other for when reasons fail to keep believing. Here's uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, a more friendly voice to Christianity, though himself not a Christian. He says that the way you fortify your faith in life is to assume the best and then to act courageously in relation to that. In both instances, faith is set against the idea of certainty, isn't it? Faith is where reason fails. Faith is an assumption that you make. But that is not how the Bible uses the word faith. That is not how Paul understands faith. When Paul talks about faith, he means trusting in the certain, the certain words and actions of God. If you've got a paper Bible, uh, which are much, much better for uh, reading than, than digital Bibles, uh, look across the page to chapter 4, verse 21. Paul's talking about Abraham there. And there, I think, Paul gives the best definition of faith in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen in a second. Now, whenever Christians think about the definition of faith, most of us will go to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence of things that we hope for, the assurance of things we cannot see. If you don't know that verse, uh, you might know that Mary Burke and Julia collaborated uh, to do a, a version of that. You can ask them about that after. Uh, it's, it's a great tune. Um, but I think Romans 4:21 is an even better definition of faith. It's one that's worth committing to your memory. It says, faith, he's talking about Abraham's faith. Abraham was fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is what faith is, being convinced in the words and actions of God. But what is it that we are to have faith in? Is it simply the existence of God? Is it agreement that what Jesus taught was good? Well, no. Look at what Paul says, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's really, really important to get this right. It's faith in Jesus Christ that makes us righteous before God. Trusting in Jesus is what saves us. Your righteousness, my righteousness, does not depend on the strength of your faith. It doesn't depend on the strength of my faith. Your righteousness depends on what Jesus has done for you. 
In other words, it's not faith that saves us. It's who we have faith in that saves us. Now, this might sound like we're splitting hairs or we're making things more complicated than they have to be, but this actually makes all the difference in the world to that question, how can I be sure that I'm saved? Because if it's the strength or the quality of your faith that saves you, well, then you are saved by something inside yourself, something that is subject to change. But the Bible says, no, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to outline exactly how that works. But I want to make this really, really clear for you. You are not saved by how you feel. You are saved by who you trust in. Every Christian struggles with this uh, from time to time, maybe all the time. If you're a Christian, you've probably had those periods, maybe you're in one of those periods right now, where you don't really feel it anymore. Maybe you come to church, this church or another church, and there you feel close to God, you know, that the music's good, the sermon's good, before coronavirus, you could talk to people and you were encouraged. Maybe you've been on a weekend away with your church um, or with a a mission society. Maybe you've been on a week-long or weeks-long summer camps, and there you're just, you know, on fire for God is a phrase we like to use. You feel really close. You know for certain, yes, I'm a Christian. But then the week rolls in. It's Wednesday. It's Thursday. You haven't slept well. You haven't read your Bible in three or four days. You haven't prayed you slip into that sin again. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, am I really a Christian? On Sunday, at that camp, I felt so sure. But now I I just don't know. The great news of Romans chapter 3, the great news of the whole Bible, is that your salvation does not depend on your endorphin levels. How you feel does not dictate whether or not you are saved. You're not saved by how close you feel to God. You are saved by Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in what Jesus has done. And that's the next thing that Paul goes on to talk about. What is it that we put our faith in? We're going to read verse 23 to 25 together. And and in those verses, there are two really important words that we need to get our heads around. One of them is fairly straightforward. The other one is a little bit less straightforward. Uh, But let's read verse 23 to 25, and we'll see what those words are. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So let's work backwards through those verses. What is it that's to be received by faith? Well, it's the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Those two words are redemption. I think I've got them bolded here for you. Redemption and propitiation. Now, you might be familiar uh, with both of those words. You're probably familiar-ish with one of those words, and one of those words you've maybe never heard before. 
or you've heard it and you've had absolutely no idea what it means. We'll start with the easy uh, word first, propitiation. No, that's a joke, obviously. That's not propitiation. The easy word is redemption. What does it mean to redeem something? Well, whenever we think about redeeming something, we think about vouchers or loyalty cards or coupons. You buy 10 burritos, you get your 11th one free. You buy 40 burritos and you get a free T-shirt. You spent 280 pounds on burritos and you get a T-shirt. What a bargain. You redeem your loyalty card. You redeem your voucher. You hand something in and you get something back in return. But when the Bible uses the word redemption, it almost always means to buy something. To buy something or someone back. To buy something or someone back. In fact, a good sort of general rule of thumb uh, for reading the Bible, whenever you see the word redemption in the Bible, the first thing that should pop into your head is Exodus, the story of Exodus. Because whenever the Bible writers use that word, that's almost always what's in their mind. Here's what God said to Moses, um, and I think it's uh, chapter 6, verse 6. Yes, that's right. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In the Bible, redemption means buying back rescue from slavery or debt. You might remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, Who was Boaz? Boaz was Ruth's kinsman, redeemer. He was the family member who bought Ruth back from destitution and poverty. In the Bible, redemption isn't about free burritos. It's about freedom from slavery. Freedom from death. In this instance, Jesus has redeemed us. He has bought us back. He has rescued us from God's judgment. And how has he done that? Verse 25, by God putting him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, some of your Bibles might have the word sacrifice of atonement there, uh, because the word propitiation is, is a hard word that we don't really use very often at all. And what they're doing is they're trying to translate difficult little Greek word, uh, the the Greek word is helastrion, uh, which is used in the Old Testament to refer to the top of the Ark of the Covenant, what's sometimes called the mercy seat. And that was the place where the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. Now, if you're like me and you're a bit of a a nerd, sort of an avid Bible reader, you might find that really interesting. But if you're not, I've only made things much more complicated, haven't I? And I'm really sorry for that. That's, that's, that's for the nerds out there. What does propitiation mean? To propitiate means to absorb the wrath or anger of someone through an offering or a gift. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He absorbed the wrath and anger of God through an offering or a gift. 
Here's a little illustration of what uh, propitiation is like, and, and it's, it's not a very good illustration, but I, I know people find these sort of things helpful. It's far from a perfect one, so don't, don't build too many theological assumptions out of this. Whenever I was um, six, seven years old, um, I didn't have a little brother uh, until I was six, and uh, I had an older cousin, he was a year older than me, and the two things we were most passionate about in this world were toy guns and wrestling. Those are the two things that we love. Not, not just WWF, as it was in those days, WWE, no, but actually, you know, wrestling each other. And um, one Saturday, we, we hung out every Saturday uh, afternoon, and we were in my granddad's living room, and we were wrestling, and he was quite a bit taller than me. He's about six foot five now. And there was always that much of a height difference between us. So I grew and he grew. So he's quite a bit bigger than me. And he kicked me in the chest, and I was winded. I was bent over, tears were in my eyes. I was absolutely furious. I was absolutely furious, but I was also really very excited because I knew I was going to get to tell. <laughs> I looked up at him. I said, oh, you're in trouble now. <laughs> I could barely breathe. You know, you're properly winded and you can't get the breath out. I thought, oh, you're in trouble. And he was petrified. And he's like, no, 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 no. Take this. And out of his pocket, he brought this little silver metal gun. I can still see it so clearly. It was, it was made of metal. Uh, it fit in my hand perfectly. It had one of those little hammers that you pull back and you pull the trigger and it clicked. It was, it was just amazing. And I'd had my eye on this gun for quite some time. And my cousin knew this. And he offered me, he made this offering to turn away my wrath and the wrath he would receive from my granda for fighting too hard. I was propitiated by this gift. I took the gun and we continued wrestling and that was that. <laughs> my wrath had been absorbed through that little gift, that little toy gun. As I said, I can still, it was, it was my pride and joy. I absolutely loved it. Jesus' death on the cross, his blood being poured out, like the Old Testament sacrificial system, his death, his blood being poured out, what we're going to remember shortly in communion, was a propitiation. It was a gift. A gift in which Jesus absorbed the wrath of God into himself. That judgment that condemnation we all deserve. And as a result of that, God is no longer angry at us. And in doing so, Jesus justifies us. He makes us righteous, good in God's sight. And he does all of this as a gift. He does it all by grace. Not because of anything good in us. See that in verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. How do you know that you're really saved? Jesus took the punishment for your sin and made you righteous, perfect in God's sight. That is what your salvation rests upon. 
if you are a Christian. That's how you know for sure that you have escaped, that you have been redeemed, that you have been rescued from God's judgment. The source of the Christian's assurance, their certainty, does not hang on their good works. It doesn't hang on their feelings. It hangs on the cross, on Jesus' propitious death for us. And all we have to do is trust, receive it by faith. It really, really is that easy. Now, if you've been following along, the next question you might ask is, how is that fair? How does that make God good? We can see how it's good for us. We see the benefits of it. But is it fair? Is it right? Is it just? Well, that's the second thing that this passage is all about. Maybe you've explained the gospel to someone before. Maybe you've heard the gospel a number of times and you just can't get your head around. How is this fair? It's an almost guaranteed response when someone hears the gospel. We're not saved by works. We don't pay God back. We would sort of see how that's fair. We don't add weight to the scales. We simply place our trust in Jesus. His death becomes our death. His perfect life becomes our life. Jesus, the Son of God, dies in our place, punished so that we can escape punishment. How on earth is that fair? There are even people who call themselves Christians, who, because this seems so unfair, they deny it. They decide this can't be true. This can't be how God works. One uh, pastor in England, a guy called Steve Chalk, wrote a book 15, 20 years ago now called The Lost Message of Jesus. Just a general rule of thumb, another general rule of thumb. See when someone writes a book called The Lost Message of Jesus, uh, or A New Kind of Christianity, or, or some, some sort of title that suggests, I've discovered something that no one's ever seen before, probably pretty dodgy. In this book, The Lost Message of Jesus, Steve Chalk coined the phrase, cosmic child abuse in relation to this idea of redemption through propitiation on the cross. That phrase has been picked up. Uh, the American pastor and author Brian McLaren likewise uses that phrase uh, to describe the cross. William Young, uh, who's the author of The Shack, which you know, did the rounds uh, a few years ago, likewise dismisses propitiation as cosmic child abuse. This is a real question we've got to deal with. Is the cross fair? Is the cross good? What's really interesting is that Paul seems to think that this cross, that this transaction that took place in the cross is the supreme evidence that God is good, that God is righteous. If you look through verses 21 to 26, you'll see that that word righteous is used four times. It's used in verse 21, verse 22, and then verse 25, and verse 26. And the first two uses of that word righteous refer to the believer being made righteous. The availability of God's righteousness to the one who believes. The righteousness that God requires 
uh, and the righteousness that God provides, being available as a gracious gift. The first two are the righteousness available to the Christian. But the second two uses of the word righteous, righteousness, refer to God's righteousness. See that in verse 25 and verse 26? Um, this was to show God's righteousness. This was to show his righteousness. So for Paul, the cross isn't the place where God's righteousness, his goodness, his fairness is called into question. For Paul, the cross is the place where it is most obviously on display. How do you know that God is good? How do you know that God is fair? Look to the cross. How can that be the case? Well, it's all tied up in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just, so sorry, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. On the cross, God proves that he is just, that he is fair, and that he is the justifier. He is good. He is merciful. On the cross, we see God's goodness, his righteousness, his justice, and his mercy. Because on the cross, God provided a way to not simply overlook sin. That's what he'd done beforehand. To see that in verse 25, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You see, until Jesus came, there was no way for sin to actually be paid for. There was no way for justice to be dealt out, apart from humanity, the guilty party, being punished for sin. That was the only way that justice could prevail. But now, God has provided a way for the guilt to be paid for, and yet the guilty party can go free. And it's all just, it's all right, it's all fair. On the cross, we see God saying that sin matters. And on the cross, we see God saying humanity matters. Sometimes people come to the cross and this idea of God's justice and they say, can't God just let it go? Can he just say, I'll forget about it? No. Because God cares about humanity too much to let sin go unpunished. What sort of a God would God be if he looked down on Auschwitz and said, oh, that doesn't matter. It's no big deal. What sort of God would God be if he looked down on 9-11 and said, oh, doesn't really matter. It's no big deal. What sort of God would God be if he looked down on the child abuser and said, oh, that doesn't matter. Forget about it. It's fine. He'd be a monster. He would be unjust. Of course, most of us can get behind the idea of a God who punishes other people for their sin. But what about your sin? See, Paul has made it perfectly clear in these last chapters and in our passage that verse, 20, verse 23 summarizes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone deserves God's judgment. No one is able to work their way out of it, and everyone deserves it. One writer put it like this, 
and I'm paraphrasing slightly, murderers are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the top of a mountain, but you are as unable to touch the stars as they. Everyone deserves God's judgment. God has to judge because he's God. He is good. He is righteous. He is justice by its definition. But on the cross, God judges Jesus in the place of people who trust in him. God doesn't say sin doesn't matter. God cares about humanity too much to say that sin doesn't matter. On the cross, we see the seriousness of sin. We see the goodness of God. Because there, all of God's judgment is poured out on Jesus, God the Son, so that anyone who trusts in him can escape that judgment. Through the cross, God demonstrates his justice. He will not let sin go unpunished. Through the cross, God demonstrates his mercy. Because there he provides a way for us to avoid the judgment we deserve. He is just and the justifier of everyone who trusts in Jesus. What that means is that if you are trusting in Jesus, you can be absolutely sure that you are saved, that you have escaped judgment because Jesus was judged in your place. You can be absolutely sure that God is good, that God is fair, because there on the cross, God's judgment was executed. God won't change his mind. The sentence has been paid. On the cross, God's righteousness is revealed, his justice and mercy, because there he showed himself to be the just and the justifier. And for the Christian, that means that they can have absolute certainty that they have been rescued because it all hangs on the character of God. God will not change his mind. Of course, for the Christian, that also means that there's no place for arrogance. And that's what those second set of verses outline. What then becomes of boasting? There's no place for arrogance in the Christian life. If you have been saved, if you have trusted in Jesus, if God has rescued you, it's not because of something that you have done. It's not because of anything good in you. It's because of the goodness of God. That is where Christian assurance comes from. It comes from the certainty of what Jesus has done. And it comes from the character of God himself. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you're with us this evening and you're not yet a Christian, I hope you've seen how the rescue, the redemption that God offers works. It's not that you have to clean yourself up before you can be rescued. So many people think, oh, I've got to get this and that in line before I trust in Jesus. That is not the case at all. Look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's by faith that we're saved, not our good deeds, not how much we've managed to clean ourselves up. It's by faith 
trusting, accepting what Jesus has done for you. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer where you can do that right now. You don't have to put up your hand. You don't have to walk to the front. All you have to do is say sorry to God for your sin, your rebellion against him, and place your trust in the Lord Jesus. It, it really is that simple. And I'm going to pray these words really slowly so that you can listen to what's said and think about what is being said. Let's pray now. We'll all bow our heads. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler.